Mart Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with poet and professor Rob Carney. Rob, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for calling. Yeah, yeah. Okie doke. So for all of our listeners, PPMP, or Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH, and available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Uh, thank you for joining me today for an unusual version of my show. Usually, my guest authors and I chat about a wide range of topics, including how they hope to inspire positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Today, however, we're looking to offer you more of a literary listening experience with the majority of the show being devoted to Rob's poetry, along with a few inspirational quotes that will be offered from me. And this is because I have found that listening to poetry is a very different experience than reading it. So here we go, folks. I'm giving you some listening time. And Rob, let's go ahead and just dive right in with one of your favorite poems and tell us a little bit about um, why you chose it for today. You know, or however you want to preface it, go for it. Okay. Um, I'll start with a poem from uh, my book called Weather Report, which is from 2006. Not my most recent, but it's a poem that I think is kind of a good uh, preface or prelude, especially because the things I'm going to share, I think, are topically connected to the social change aspect of your show. Cool. This is one called, Every Four Years, We Get an Extra Day for What? <laughs> if I were a saw, I'd cut wood with my teeth, but I'm not. If I were my yard, I'd grow grass instead of hair, have trees instead of arms, and shake hands with birds, but I'm not. I'm a man with a mind, heart, and language, so I'll speak. A hundred crows can crash their voices into anything, take fish away from an osprey, drive stellar jays off of every fence post. They're still just crows. I'd rather be corn and take my chances. Corn has ears. <laughs> In Stout Grove, a temple of sequoias, these thousand-year coastal redwoods 30 feet around, I startled a mountain lion. It turned from the road and was gone in so much silent fern, like animal lightning in a green, green sky. If anyone ever kills it, he'll have taken more wild beauty than he can ever make. He'll owe the universe a cougar, and I hope in my too tame guts he has to pay. How can God, the size of all creation, be buried alive in one book? We can't even forecast the weather. Who's fooling who? How can salmon that spawned by the millions and fed 10,000 bears disappear in the power grid, only swim a while longer up the channels of TV? Or crows, the whole harangue of them so mistake their own croaking. I mean people, of course, people with their black rag hearts. I'm just a man, not even an osprey, and I can't saw off what's rotten. But maybe there are still enough ears out there. Maybe there's still a language enough of us can speak. Okay, I got chills. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Wow. 
I don't think I want to say anything because I want our listeners, you folks, to be able to just take that one in without my words interfering. Thank you, Rob. You're welcome. All righty. So um, now my turn. <laughs> this is super short, and then we're going to come right back to you. I have a uh, guest author whose show will be coming out in probably about a month and a half, folks. His name is Brian Fagan. F-A-G-A-N. Brilliant, brilliant man who has spent his career combining history and archaeology in a way that makes it um, understandable by people who are not PhDs in the field. And the combination of history and archaeology and also um, environmental science, animal science, you know, climatology. So he combines these things and allows us to see what's happening today through the lens of what has happened similarly in the past. So it's a way of pulling history forward and saying, well, look what happened to the Vikings in Greenland. Now, what might happen if we continue to do this or that in our time? Uh, So that you can look ahead or just keep an eye open. And eventually he's going to come up as one of my authors. Um, The book I'm quoting from right now is The Great Warming climate change, and the rise and fall of civilizations. Very pertinent information. And I'm going to read for you what is the last paragraph of his book. Okay. History is always around us, threatening, offering encouragement, sometimes showing us precedence. The warm centuries of a thousand years ago remind us that we have never been masters of the natural world. At our best, we have accommodated ourselves to its fickle realities. As the Khmer and the Maya show us, the harder we try to master it, the greater our risk of sliding down the hazardous slope of unsustainability. We should accept this reality and not be frightened by a future where we are not the masters. We must cease trying to assume that role. The people of a thousand years ago remind us that our greatest asset is our opportunism and endless capacity to adapt to new circumstances. Let us think of ourselves as partners with, rather than potential masters of, the changing natural world around us. All right. That's good. I actually, you know... I agree completely. Um, that's very much like Robinson Jeffers, a poet mm-hmm. from uh, Carmel. Um, he was early and mid 20th century. I got to mm-hmm. read out there uh, at his actual house uh, last spring, which was yeah. awesome. He, had, he in one of his poems he talks about how we must un- uncenter ourselves from ourselves. We must unhumanize ourselves a little. Right, mm. and so um, he's talking about oh, the damage that people do, uh, whether they're intending to or not, mm-hmm. uh, mindlessly just by you know proliferating and eating and taking and dwelling on everything. But it doesn't always have to be so serious. I got three poems that are new, actually, and short each one mm-hmm. that are tied to you know the environment, and I think I don't know. I mean, the environment can be so earnest and serious sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of times people respond well to what's maybe funny. 
Oh, absolutely. So okay, I got three, if you don't yeah. mind. They're all no. short. Uh, that might dovetail well with the quote you just read. No, that's um, perfect. It, just tell us first real quick. You said that they're not published yet? No, they're new. I just finished them like a minute ago. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Oh, yeah, of course. That's great. Okay. This first one of the three is called After They Resurrect the Mastodon. Mm. After they resurrect the Mastodon, I hope I win a golden ticket because rides are awesome, but who likes waiting in line? Imagine the view from atop its shoulders all the way to the parking lot and eye-to-eye with the Mastodon balloons that pretty vendor is selling. In a former life, she was a lifeguard, but dropped that to be a part of history. I want that, too. My name below a photograph titled Man as Ice Age Astronaut. But first, I want a churro. Those things smell delicious. How do I get this Mastodon to bring me over there? Now... It's true. I'm trying really hard. I real when you when you're reading, I don't want to actually be like having an auditory reaction to it because that will interfere with other people. But I'm so I'm like, you know, <laughs> right? That one is a true true story. There is a group of people. I don't know what they're doing, but they their intention is to resurrect the mastodon. It mm-hmm. is also true that churros do smell good. I agree. Yeah, and then this one, this one's uh, an even truer story uh, called Since They Ran Out of Money in Pleasant Grove, which is a town near me uh, in Utah. Oh, I think there's a Pleasant Grove in Southern California, too. Yeah, well, there are probably Pleasant Groves in every state, <laughs> right. you know, because everybody wants to, to claim ownership of pleasantness and groves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mostly, though, it's going to be called Pleasant Grove Mall parking lot now, but... Um, Anyway, since they ran out of money in Pleasant Grove, the city quit trapping raccoons, stopped taking them back to the woods. For crap's sake, a councilman wondered, what's that cost in gas? The slurpy expenses didn't help things either. That part was probably my fault. I'm the driver, and when I get thirsty, it's slurpies all around. My mom was always big on sharing. Don't blame me for the rest of it, though. Shooting raccoons in your yard seems, I don't know, dumb. Yeah, sure, there are fines involved if bullets travel off your property. But how is that supposed to fix the budget? Everyone here is a perfect shot. And then, and then this <laughs> now, one. Now, wait, wait, you come from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Are, are there more raccoons up here or down there in Utah? Oh, there are more woods in the Northwest, so right. more raccoons. But... So what inspired um, that? Like you're in Utah and you're thinking about raccoons. They had an actual policy uh, to shoot raccoons in their yards rather than transport them. This is this was in the news. They oh. decided having a, a budget crunch that the, the solution was to do things like allow people to shoot raccoons in their yard. So long as, and this mm-hmm. was part of the law, so mm-hmm. long as the bullets didn't go off their property – which is a not a guaranteeable thing, unless unless like they're a, in a cage. Well, unless you're a perfect yeah. shot, right? And right. Fortunately, they all are. Um, <laughs> right. And this one's called because all orcas have a way with words, and this one I think of as you know this is probably the most directly uh, environmental mm-hmm. because all orcas have a way with words. Decoding their ten thousand whistles is a lot of fun. 
We sail out with microphones, plunk them in the water, then listen as they badmouth dolphins, complain about squid, their cheaters camouflage, and that candy-ass getaway ink squirt maneuver. No respect for the food chain. They click and move on, gone beyond our audio range. Their word for bikini is seaweed. For fishing boat, it's wants too many. But their name for themselves is impossible to translate. Something like more than wild appetite, or it takes more than salmon to be full. Oh, my. Okay. So, salmon. So, uh, so anyway, I, what I, what I want to try and do, at least sometimes, mm-hmm. is tell, you know, tell something short, absurd, funny, Mm-hmm. As a way to, you know, but there is something in there too. I mean, I don't have to go running around saying stop shooting raccoons. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to do it. At least I think so. And you know, we'll see what other people think. But like I said, they're new, and uh, well, I had a good time. These kind of tumbled out of me, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. It, it's like, like that. There's probably this impression that you know poets are sitting around, you know, scratching their scraggly wild hair in a corner trying to piece the words together and the agony of the poetry, which probably happens occasionally, but there can also be the flow, the joy, the laughter, and and the pure fun of it. Goofing around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I I think, um, personally, I think that humor is an invitation for people to come together. I think if you can get someone laughing, you're really inviting them to um, join with you. You know, it's 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 an invitation. It, and if you're not being humorous, a lot of times that can be more of a um, I take myself too seriously here, and and people can feel a little bit like, oh, I'm supposed to agree with you, or I'm supposed to, you know. It, but the humor opens up our our hearts in a way and allows us to actually join. Well, I would hope so, you know, and especially because the the people with no sense of humor are usually the ones that aspire to be. Uh, in charge, right? I mean, mm. I don't know if you had a chance to read that one that I sent. Uh, that was a terrain for Fourth of July about fireworks. Oh that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That was exactly. I mean, that one. I think you know. Who knows? Some people will be sensitive anyway. But shoot, Lady Bracknell's in the Victorian audience would have gotten up at intermission and, and walked out of Oscar Wilde's play in a huff, right? But everybody else, mm-hmm. un Lady Bracknell, thinks that's funny. Um, do you want to hear that one? You mean you mean old roads? Yeah. The, yeah. The, well, okay. So it's called political science, and it's categorized as one of several things. I just keep feed, I have a feature at Terrain called Old Roads: New Stories, and this one is the newest oh, okay, of it, those it, stories. It. So, so it's called political science. Right. Okay. So real quick. So Terrain dot org. Tell us very briefly what they do. Well, they're they're. Their journal is a journal of the built and natural environments, and so they want uh, they want essentially to do what you said, which is to bridge between, say, architects or urban landscape designers and poets, uh, mm-hmm. photographers, artists, uh, storytellers. So what they're hoping for, I guess, is either the most literary uh, writing that an architect can do, or the most um, thematically purposeful writing that a that, that a poet or, or a storyteller can write. So they're interested right. in the ecology. They're interested in the environment. They're interested in the spaces we build. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the one of the blog uh, 
now they're all called currents, mm -hmm. uh, like river currents, like current events. One of the blogs there, one of the currents there, is about a woman's project building a sustainable house. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that could be very, very instructive, I would think, for oh, people wow, who are cool. doing that too or wanting to. Yeah. Mine is not instructive. Mine is, again, um, sometimes people might say, he appears to just be goofing around. My mom, in fact, asks, what is this exactly? It seems that you're <laughs> just writing cloud formations and people can find whatever shape they want to. Well, and, why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that was a great metaphor. That you is, know? oh my gosh. So in in trying to categorize what I'm writing, she wound up writing, you know. Yeah. I, so this one is my attempt to be a bridge, but also to be, I think, patriotic and mm -hmm. funny at the same time. Well, um, when I first met um, the gen the gentleman who um, I believe is like one of the major creators of it. Simmons. Yeah. And it was at um, WT No, not WTO. AWP conference. There you go. Yeah. WTO is totally different, hot. You can you tell? No, WTO, I think, is a race car thing. Oh, stop. It you, might be. No, WTO. No? Wait, WTO. Oh, well, that's the World Trade Organization. Thank you. Race no. cars were more interesting. Yeah, no, WTO was like massive and huge protests in Seattle a number of years ago. That's why yeah. it's in my head. Okay. So anyways, I was AWP and I met Simmons. And so, yes, I just love this because I think people who are being asked to take the technological, how do you design and create buildings concept and go out and design a neighborhood or whatever, you know, they, the thing about people who come out of college with a degree is that they know what they know and they oftentimes don't know what they don't know. And, and I think what's brilliant is for them to have that, and then this brings the art and the creativity and the humanness back to them. It reminds them of that, and I bet they would design a neighborhood different after reading a lot of the literature that's shared here because it reminds them that these are humans that are going to be living here, feeling humans living in your neighborhood, not just cars and houses and dogs, right? right you know. Right. So anyway, so we have you go to terrain.org. Yep. And then you click on Currents, which is on the far left of their, their menu bar. It pops you down here, this great American flag with a fireworks sign, and Rob Carney is going to read us that poem. Go for okay. it. Okay. Uh, this is called Political Science. One summer, the people of Kalispell had too much paint. Driving into town, I saw a car slap-dashed with yellow. Must have been 200 cartoon lemons and a Homemade signboard bolted on the roof. Dale sales auto, lemon car, no good. So that was the first example. The second was this. I was driving a truckload of fireworks to Sandpoint, Bonners Ferry, Whitefish, etc., to Shelby, Great Falls, Fort Benton, and back to Spokane. The same loop I'd taken three days before when I went to set up a dozen fireworks stands. So now I'm back in Kalispell dropping off their order, and they've painted the whole thing with Jesus murals. Wow. Son of God with a sparking halo, Messiah with a lamb in one hand, a Roman candle in the other, one of the wise men, Melchior, I think, putting poppets in front of the manger, and the youth director running things had even more ideas. Why don't you sell some Christian fireworks instead of these red devils? You could add a sticker so people know they're Christian approved. I don't pick the names, I told them. They make them over in China. He walked off mumbling about communists, shaking his head. Our warehouse was happier, though. Calling out test-run firework names are typically boring and cardboard jobs, suddenly not. How about the Star of Bethlehem and the Noah sees a sunbeam and the 30 pieces of silver and let there be lights? 
Maybe to Cleopatra? That's not biblical, you idiot. I thought she was married to Moses. What are you, nuts? What should we call these Piccolo Peets? Little Towers of Babel. How about the Cuckoo Fountains? Just call them doves. Are you sure she didn't marry Moses? I thought I saw it in a movie. You think we should rename the Sparklers? No, they're just Sparklers. But now, with myrrh, all of us channeling Byron or something, a bunch of low-wage Shakespeare's stopping to sneeze black powder on our sleeves and forgetting about our coffee break. That afternoon flew faster than any of us knew. But why stop there? Why not specialize for everyone? Aim fireworks at nurses and doctors, cats and dogs. For the dinosaur lover, there's the pterodactyl rocket. For summer league baseball teams, we've got grand slams. For the ambidextrous, try these aerials with fuses on both sides. Everything lasered into segments, everything split, even for surfers. Two distinct versions of the perfect wave fountain, blue sparks or turquoise, Pacific or South Pacific, take your pick. Or yes, we could stick to the same old basics, united, indivisible. Instead of seals of approval, yes, we could just keep fireworks for all. I love that! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that's so visual, too. Well, fireworks, man, it better be visual. Yeah, like in my head, I have like, there's the fireworks stand. I can see like that thing in the side of the wall with the mural. I could see, you know, what was it, Jesus with the lamb. I'm like, that was just all like a movie picture in my head. Well, that that part about Kalispell, all of that stuff is 100% true. I mean, the only invented part there was that some of, uh, I had to make some better firework names than the ones that people were yelling in the warehouse but you know so some of these things are me recording actual things that have happened you know or responding to actual things in the news which as far as i could tell is what most blogs do right a lot of times you want to be current which is probably which is a play on words with their currents right i mean Mm -hmm. seriously that actually is brilliant the currents you know it's a flow of information and it's the most recent yeah yeah and I just, you know, I thought the idea of, you know, that Christians have to have their own product line would have struck Jesus himself as awfully odd, you know. But um, Yeah, maybe. I mean, Can you imagine he makes the disciples all wear T-shirts that say, you know, disciple on them or something? Right, 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 right. Or I'm, I'm, I'm this one and not, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, so, you know, you. I mean, he never wanted to create, you know, a product line. It no. was all, It was all, you know, uh, goodwill and fellowship and things like that had nothing to do with commodities honestly only capitalism can use an anti-capitalist as a way of selling stuff yes it is an odd deal but that part was true uh of course you know when when i took the fireworks down down after the season we had to repaint it just the regular color i mean you can't (laughs) you can't very well save aside one for one youth group out in kalispell you know Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah right that i'm okay so everyone, all right, my turn. That was brilliant, and I'm going to dovetail on that by actually reading um, an excerpt. This will probably take about three minutes, okay. maybe four, because I don't want to rush it. It's uh, one. It's, it's basically about two and a half pages, okay, okay. folks? And um, it's from a book called The Speech. Uh, which is actually about Senator Bernie Sanders and the historic filibuster on corporate greed and the decline of our middle class that he engaged in a number of years ago. So this is in the introduction, and he's already spent a, uh, two and a half pages 
and I'm picking up halfway through and taking you to the end of the introduction. And I don't think, yeah, okay, it, it gives basically all the detail you need. All righty. So a filibuster, I, I don't personally understand really exactly what a filibuster is, and I'm not going to even try to discuss it at this exact moment, but there is a way in which a person can get up in Congress or the House, maybe it happens in both places, and they get up to the podium and they start talking and they don't stop and they're not forced off the podium and there is a political impact that them staying there and talking for a long period of time has. I believe oftentimes it is designed to literally fill up the time that would have been necessary to pass a legislation piece that there's a large objection to. And so there's this is politics and this is some interesting stuff. The most recent example is a woman, I believe, in Texas who spent like 13 hours doing a filibuster in tennis shoes because you can't sit down, right? You'll hear that. And it was in Texas because they were going to pass something that would make it almost virtually impossible for someone to legally access their right to abortion in the state of Texas. And as she was there for hours and hours, thousands of people drove to the Capitol and stood and chanted in the hallways and supported and cheered. And it was this massive thing that actually succeeded and prevented a piece of legislation from going forward. So that is the sum total of what I know about a filibuster. I'm pretty ignorant on it, but here is what he says in the introduction, second half of the introduction. What does it feel like to stand and talk for eight and a half hours when you can't leave the floor, eat, or go to the bathroom and know that a TV camera is on you all that time? It's hard. The after effect hit me a few days later when I found myself very, very tired. During the speech itself, my legs began to cramp up a bit. My voice also became pretty hoarse. When I walked on to the floor, I had no idea how long I would stay there. When I was mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the 1980s, I sometimes gave speeches for as long as an hour. That was it. Would I last three hours, five hours? 20 hours, I really didn't know. What I was clear about in my own mind, however, was that I wasn't going to read from the phone book or sing songs just to eat up time. I wanted to speak for as long as I had something relevant to say. While I didn't have a prepared speech, I'm sorry, while I didn't have a prepared script for the speech, I mostly worked off of previous speeches I had given or articles that I had written and occasionally excerpts from some books I had read. I would read a few lines or pages and go off from there. Twice, colleagues came to the floor and engaged in what we call a colloquy. I remain grateful to Senators Sherrod Brown and Mary Landrew for their support of my effort. Let me also warn the good readers of this book that it contains some repetition. That is not an accident. In giving this speech, I was more than aware that most people were not going to be listening to it in its entirety. I suspected that most people would tune in for a half hour or an hour and then move on with their lives. I made it a point to keep returning to my basic themes. Was I surprised about the kind of attention that the speech received? Are you kidding? The phones in both my Washington and Vermont offices never stopped ringing. 
In Vermont, every one of my eight staff people did nothing else all day but respond to calls, thousands of calls, and emails. The Senate television website crashed because of the huge number of people who wanted to watch the speech live, online, and apparently C-SPAN, too, had an exceptional day. According to the New York Times, my speech was the most Twittered event in the world on that day. There were front-page stories in newspapers around the country, and the speech was covered widely in the international media. The number of people who signed up as friends on my Facebook page doubled the previous total in one day, and visits to my website went sky-high. Some journalists even claimed that Obama held an unscheduled impromptu press conference with former President Bill Clinton, who defended the tax deal, in order to divert media attention away from what I was doing on the, me on the Senate floor. Despite my best efforts and the hard work of many other members of Congress, we lost the vote on the tax deal that President Obama worked out with the Republicans. A very bad agreement was signed into law. Was my eight-and-a-half-hour speech worth the effort? Absolutely. If this country is going to move forward in a new direction, if we're going to save the middle class and change our national priorities, we have got to cut through the fog and obfuscation of the corporate mainstream media and start focusing on the life and death issues that working families really care about. The very strong response to my speech tells me that there is a hunger all over America for a discussion about economic truths, for a counterattack on the ferocious assaults that are taking place against working families, and for a practical plan on how we can reverse the obscene politics that favor the rich over the middle class and the disadvantaged in our nation. If my speech helped educate people about some of these issues, made them aware that they're not alone in their concerns or their pain, and pointed a way to the future, it was well worth it. So this book is, if I understand correctly from my reading of it, it is the speech written in, in paper form, eight and a half hours. So that's a transcription of... Um, basically, yes, it's not a discussion of this is what he said. It's not even broken right, up into right. chapters. It is just the speech, which was given on Friday, December 10th, 2010. Um, yes. Okay. I think that's interesting because usually filibusters aren't, you know. Usually it's, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz did one. At one point, Ted Cruz was reading with a whole bunch of melodrama, Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham. You're, you're not no, joking. No, I'm not, uh, <sighs> because they, have to, they can't stop talking. Right. So, you know, they resort to all kinds of things just to keep talking. Yeah. It's a stall tactic, like you said. It's, yeah. it's in order to not allow, uh, not allow uh, what they call cloture. It's in the Senate. They, mm -hmm. until, they can't vote until they've decided there's no more discussion on something. Mm -hmm. So the filibuster is to just go on discussing. It doesn't even have to be uh, about the actual bill. You know, uh, it can just 
be about anything. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's interesting that he tried. And uh, that he says right here, you know, I wasn't going to read from the phone book or sing right. songs. I mean, and I remember when I read that, I thought, that must mean people actually do that. <laughs> they, well, yes, because you, you run out. I mean, as much as it doesn't seem possible, mm-hmm. you run out of things to say. And if people are used to, say, commercial radio, they, there are a lot of breaks scheduled, even mm-hmm. in talk radio, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I got one that might fit with that. I well, mean, hold given, on. Given the tone. Yes, but before you do that, since you just mentioned breaks, I have one break that I need to do during okay. the show. So how about we throw it out there real quick? Sure. All right. Okay. For anyone just joining us and those who have been here for about 33 minutes, uh, my name's March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today, I am talking with Rob Carney, who I spoke with once before. I'm having him back on the show. And we are offering an entire hour, pretty much, of red poetry and red quotes from amazing and inspirational people. That's the quotes, the poetry is from Rob. So we're going to get right back to about another half an hour of this. But first, I'm going to take a moment to invite all of my listeners. And you know what? I have very high ratings actually here on Voice of Ashon for my show. I think that's because I interview a lot of authors from literally around the world and the country. And so they share the show with, with their audience. And so it gets out there. So everyone listening to this show right now, you're actually not alone. There's a bunch of people who are listening. And I want to ask all of you to seriously consider actually supporting Voice of Ashon by becoming what they call sustaining member, right? The deal is that Voice of Ash on here, it is built upon volunteerism. And that's why we have our own FM station, uh, 101.9 KVSH. Uh, So we need literally the support of the people who value what you get here. And what you get here is people like me and others who are able to create content. We are so well supported. They don't just make this place happen. If you show up, anyone, and you say, I want to do a show, they will meet with you. They'll help you in every way that you need. You have to have the fire under your butt to make it happen, but they are there 100%. So honestly, this radio station does deserve your support, in my opinion. So here's how it goes. You go to Voice of Vashon dot org backslash miles and you can find out how to win 100,000 airline miles to go just about anywhere you want there are three ways to enter this contest or this challenge and do it please do this before july 31st that is a deadline it's this month you can sign up as a vov sustaining member or you can upgrade your existing membership so a sustaining member is clearly someone who says you guys rock I'm going to help you out. I don't actually personally know exactly how it works, whether it's a monthly or annual or whatever, but it's it's helping out. And then the third way is to bring in new sustaining members. You know, literally, not only tell people about the show, but then invite them to consider supporting VOV. Um, it, it says here, um, bring in the most new sustaining members, including yourself, and you get the airline miles So it's literally like uh, that type of a competition. Or get your name in the hat to win any one of five other getaway prizes. So uh, if you're a Girl Scout, whoever sells the most cookies gets a certain badge. Okay, the most sustaining members, bam, you get the airline miles. But there's also a drawing. The 100,000-mile challenge is proudly sponsored by Windermere Vashon. 
And Windermere has been very supportive of Voice of Ashon for quite a while. And this is one more way in which they are helping out. Okie doke. So, yeah, folks, just just give up some love, man. Join up. VOV, I can't say anything bad about VOV. And I've been here for three years. And I literally can't say anything bad about it. Okay. So, Rob, uh, back to you. I just read um, from the introduction to the speech, which is Bernie Sanders' filibuster from 2010. And you you said you had a, a poem that perhaps intersected well with that. Yeah. It's one called Facts and Figures. Um, it's a, a poem in several sections, so it's a bit longer than the ones I've been doing so far. But it goes like this. Facts and Figures. None of this comes with citation, of course, and I've had to fill in most of it myself. It has to do with homework, a notebook, a math book two pounds heavier with rain and papers scattered like leaves across my yard. November 18th, 2014, four days after I'd heard it on the radio, and who doesn't love a good robot story, outer space? Jesus Valenzuela. I figured he went to the school down the street and stopped in. Nobody wanted it there. His mother had told him, Jesus es Alida. The family moving away or again or out, no, no forwarding address. The secretary nodded at the trash can, gave me a look like, thanks for trying. Instead, I took it all home and dried it by the fire. My list of facts by Jesus. Fact one, Utah looks so much like Mars that Martian movies make their movie here. Look it up. Fact two, have you ever run so fast as you can into a rock wall like Wiley Coyote? Smash! 40,000 is the comet's speed, and spaceship land on it. Wow. Fact three, what is a origami swan? Fact four, 311 million. That's how many mile. I couldn't help smiling. He'd zeroed in on the detail I liked, too. The physicists needed a simile, an origami swan, to float their story on the shallow pond of the news. What took off from Earth, weighing 200 pounds, would weigh less in the comet's different gravity, only as much as a piece of paper, a folded bird. And if it bounced, if it fluttered away after all those years of waiting, their craft had to spear gun spikes in the rock and hold on, and Jesus, third grade, Salt Lake City, wrote the right question in his notebook. If it weren't for the swan, that anchor in their story, would it stick? Would anyone hold still and listen? Jesus did better than the physicist, though. He packed all their facts in one figure. Ten years of travel, four billion miles involving four planetary slingshot orbits, pack it down. A trillion comets in our solar system, and you're trying to land on one? And it's clocking 40-plus thousand miles per hour? Pack it down. That craft piloted remotely that craft the size of a washing machine, but with instruments rather than a tumbler drum, fragile and expensive, pack it down into one image, and you did. Amen for Smash, Jesus. Amen for Wiley Coyote. But why was your backpack scattered in my yard? And where'd you go? More facts and figures. 311 million miles away is definitely distant. I have 216,000 on my car, an old Saturn I pay to keep running. If I drove it for 18,000 years, 
I could park in that comet's garage. By the way, NASA didn't build this ship. The engineers were European. Now picture them spiking the ball in our end zone. Imagine their touchdown dance. We've displaced our dollars from exploration into roads and border enforcement. Fact three, what is a origami swan? Science needs someone to tell its story. Carcaridon carcareus or great white? I think you can see my point. I'm calling that spaceship the Valenzuela. I'm naming that comet, look it up. I don't know where you've gone, Jesus, but I hope wherever it is, you get to be a kid. And someone is showing you which dot is Mars. My own son says he wants to go there, be an astronaut. He doesn't know it's a one-way trip, an empty rock without Christmas trees, and he could walk eight years without seeing a river or cat. I think he'd be lonely. Don't be lonely where you are, Jesus. And try to hang on to your homework. I like the lion you drew in your math book. Sleep well. Okay, like seriously, that's all true about that little thing that landed on the comet? Every bit of that's true. Oh, my. And you never hear about it in the media. That's like amazing. Well, actually, the reason that I know is because it was on NPR, and I was trying to drive while writing notes because it sounded like it was so cool. Right. I mean, like, like I didn't know that. Like, I would have been ju- like I would have been jumping up and down, you know, slingshotting around various planets. I mean, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, but we didn't we didn't make that. That was the Europeans. Oh, who cares? It was a human. It was a human, but the humans running things here want to use that same equivalent in dollars to build a wall. You know. Yeah, I think they also, um, or that my girlfriend made the point. She said it's not a robot they used in Dallas. It's a drone on wheels. Yeah. Well, there's that, too. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. what Bernie Sanders is uh, saying in that in that transcript that's now mm-hmm. a book mm-hmm. um, this is described as populism. Of course, other people are described as, as populists, too, and they strike me as scarier kinds, more mm-hmm. nationalistic. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'm not in favor of uh, having to walk outside in my neighborhood and piece together what happened to some Hispanic kid, you know. Mm, I know that was I was going to ask about that part. So you, so the that was in your front yard. The, the, the backpack. Yes. Yeah. Now I have, like I said at the beginning, I've had to fill in most of it myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know. Maybe it was just a kid who chucked his bag or whatever. But yeah. usually, a kid. <laughs> and when you go uh, down the street and. People are like, yeah, whatever. I mean, that's that's a common story. I mean, I even have that as a detail in one about teachers. Not, you know, a different neighborhood where my wife is a school teacher, the Title One area. Mm-hmm. This is in, this is called a uh, 21st century math exam, and this is more or less also true. But of course, you have to rearrange everything into, into a story. I get asked sometimes. Fiction writers don't get asked. I get asked. Is that true? <laughs> did that did that happen? It, yeah, all but the details, right? Yeah. Um, so this one is, is, again, it's about what it's like for a lot of people who don't usually make it in the news unless it's some sort of, you know, aftermath scene of something terrible. 
mm-hmm. and teachers. They don't generally make it in the news unless they're being insulted. Um, so this is called 21st century math exam. Mm. A woman goes into debt to be a fifth grade teacher. Times amortization schedules mean that someone taught bankers their math. Times 29 kids in the classroom times 22 are bilingual. Everything from my mind to Navajo, from Spanish to Samoan, times a third of them can translate if their parents come to school. Divided by seven payday cash advance lenders and a handful of stations for auto emissions inspections, times no doctor's office, no shoe store, nowhere to swim. Plus, all the neighborhood housing is rental, minus ICE keeps taking people, divided by TV yelling illegals a lot. They're, coming, they're sneaking over to the border to steal our jobs and live luxuriously. Plus, her students do 10 more hours of testing times. Their scores reveal she's not teaching enough equals raise your hands now higher if this isn't adding up. Mm. Your wife teaches school, yes? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say that there are plenty of people who are writers with, kind of, I don't know, subjects or inclinations that cross over with the introduction that Bernie Sanders has written. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that all writers are, would vote for him if given the opportunity on the, uh, on the ballot, mm-hmm. but I do think that when you're writing stories, the stories are more interesting if there's conflict. And, of course, mm-hmm. the approach is, is different. Politicians are supposed to be ethical, but a lot of times have to act much more pragmatically. Um, whereas a writer is free to be as ethical uh, and idealistic as a writer wants to be, because mm-hmm. your connection is is different, and it doesn't mean that you have to get Louis Gomer from Texas to to vote yes. Right, but at the same time, if you think about it, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was a writer. I mean, that's what you're doing when you're writing your speeches. And, you know, uh, he was in, I think it was the Birmingham jail writing yes. on toilet paper. Yes. When you wrote that one really amazing, famous speech. So, so, and he was being as idealistic and ethical in his writing. And at the same time, if you think about it, it definitely sold. Oh, it did. And I yeah. think that because Lyndon Baines Johnson was the, you know, <clears throat> vice president and the president, and he, you know, but... He, I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't just a straight. He, all the ideals that Martin Luther King wrote did not become somehow legislation, no. right? And it, but you know, it had to be worked out, and it took somebody like LBJ to do it because he agreed that that was you know the right thing to do. But I am sure that there were sometimes that it took a lot of arm twisting or negotiating and. Yeah, I think that politicians, on the one hand, we we should we should definitely hold them uh, accountable. Mm-hmm. But on the other, you know, I mean, if you think about a representative, even the nicest, most amazing one of them is only one four hundred thirty fifth yeah. of one half of one third yeah. of the federal part of the, uh, of the government. So I imagine mm-hmm. that there are plenty of people who go into politics wanting one thing and then decide, crap, no, I'm just going to go be a writer now because that, you know, I mean, that's, that's got to be an easier gig. Oh, personally, I, I'm not brave enough to go into politics. Well, I wouldn't want people bugging me, you know. I mean, honestly, that's a nice thing about being a writer, too, mm-hmm. is that you don't have to go around and act. Well, that's not true. We still have to bug people. We just have to do it differently, and we don't call them on the phone and say, will you listen to me? 
Well, so I'm going to go ahead. I mean, I think that's actually just a final point on that piece is that what's so really, um, it's impressive, but more than that is instructional that Bernie Sanders over 40 years was able to exist in that system, succeed in that system, and not have to sell out to do so. No, I don't think he ever did. No, and I'm gonna. Um, what I'm gonna do because we're at about 50 minutes here, so we really have about five more minutes, because okay. then I'll be finishing with my ending song, which um, is a brilliant song. I'm gonna go ahead and read my next two quotes because they're both uh, very short, both in a row, and then I'll hand it off to you for a final poem. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is from a book uh, titled "The View from Casa Chapitos," a journey beyond the border and this is written by judith jill who is one of my authors that i interviewed with a few months ago and this interview is going to be coming out in the next couple of months so this is a prelude a little bit or i don't know if that's the right word but so very short one single sentence um it's at the beginning of the book and the quote is the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And that is Marcel Proust. And I, I just came back from 16 days in Denmark. And this, is, this says it perfectly. Because even though I've spent two years actually researching Denmark and um, being very interested in moving my family there for about a four- to five-year period of time, and the purpose was all along to not read about Denmark or watch a movie about it, but to live in a successful socialist democracy. Um, you know, when you look at statistics and you look at outcomes and all that, Denmark is amazing. But none of that really um, can get through the dominant narrative that exists in, Amer in the American mind, which is... Yeah, they say it's better. Maybe it looks better. But guess what? It's really not. Trust us. It's just as crappy over there, just in different ways. So don't pay too much attention to that and just stay here because America's the best. That's sort of the dominant narrative that gets into our brain here in our country. And so it stops us from actually being willing to learn from people in the world who might actually be more successful than us in certain ways. So I've always wanted to take my family there so that we could breathe it in and inhale it and eat it and absorb it and live it and, and get underneath the, I read a book, I watched a TV show layer and really understand and live a successful socialist democracy environment. So I went there for 16 days, and there were all these aha moments. I haven't even written about most of them yet, but I will. I'll be publishing them in the Burn Report and other places. Uh, but definitely, it gave me new eyes. So that's, I love that quote. And then uh, the second one here, my husband, my mother, my mother got this book out from the library. This exact book in my hand, because it's got the library sticker on it. This is by Carl Sagan. And the title is interesting, um, The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. So that's the book. And it was uh, co-written with his wife, whose name is, oh gosh, I haven't memorized her name and I should have done that. 
Oh, what's her name? What's her name? Because they always mention at the beginning of the chapters that she helped write, they will include her name. I'll find it before the end of the show because I don't want to flip through too much. But um, so I have uh, three quotes here from uh, basically the beginning of each chapter are really impactful and insightful quotes. So first we have this is a campaign speech in 1980 by Ronald Reagan. Um, The quote is simple. Why should we subsidize intellectual curiosity? Okay. Anyone who knows what happened with public funding of universities knows that the 60s and 70s was very different from the 80s and 90s. All right. Second quote. This is George Washington in his address to Congress, January 8th, 1790. There is nothing which can better deserve our patronage than the promotion of science and literature Knowledge is, in every country, the surest basis of public happiness. Okay. Then we have this one, which is, um, reminds us, I think, of something very important. This is from 1950, and this is Robert H. Jackson, who was a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. He was born in the late 1800s, and he actually served as, I think I have the word wrong, but the he was like the number one uh, oh, okay. When they did the Nuremberg trials and the U S sent someone as a lawyer to be like their number one attorney in charge of that, it was this guy. So he was the lead. And uh, then he became a Supreme court justice. And he says here, it is not the function of our government to keep the citizen from falling into error. It is the function of the citizen to keep the government from falling into error. Okay. So I'm done with quotes and we get to have um, a final poem from you. Okay. Um, actually, let me front end it with something very short too. A yeah. haiku. It's kind of, you know, I mean, it's kind of like what the the quotes were saying, but different. Mm-hmm. So this haiku, and then one more poem. So the haiku is just a five-seven-five-syllable Japanese pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Here, here's how it goes. You've heard sharks don't sleep. Your heart should be seven sharks. Hunting what? More heart. And I'll oh, end. Oh, I love that. I love that. That one's in a book of mine called Story Problems. And I'll oh, end. I remember. I have that book. That's my that's my favorite book. Thank you. And I'll and I'll end with one from the book called Eighty Eight Maps, which came out from last uh, last fall from Lost Horse Press. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine Holbert's the publisher there uh, over in Sandpoint, Idaho. This is called Sometimes It Isn't the Same Old Story. So it's a fable. Um, and, but it doesn't involve animals like you know fables. That's not that's not a deal breaker. Fables don't have to have animals, but they have to have something fantastical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it goes like this. Sometimes it isn't the same old story. You could understand him misunderstanding, digging such careful holes with his shovel, sifting in spoonfuls of bird seed, an honest mistake. And you could half understand how he stubbornly finished, how he aimed his back at everyone laughing and patted the dirt down gently with his hands. But to greet each day with his watering can, 
to go on as if he were a gardener, as if he believed someone finally stomped all the green in his yard and that should have been the end of that. Certainty feels like a flag when you fly it. It snaps in the wind and makes the sound of your own good name, of your own high opinion. It's the opposite of birds. And it was birds that he was growing after all. Cardinals, robins, chickadees, starlings. His seedlings stood up again, unfurled their branches, all of them loaded not with blossoms but with song. That was the season people relearned amazement, followed by the autumn when they relearned amazement again. One morning, he went round his yard on a ladder. He paid no attention to everyone clapping, just picked each bird and released it into the sky. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. So for all of our listeners, when you go to voiceofvashon.org and you click on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, at the top, picture of me and a picture of my guest author and a bio. Now, Rob has a lot of work out there that's available in different locations and different books and whatnot. And so I'm going to go ahead and make sure that the bio that we put up includes um, some of those listings and how you can find his work in different places. If you earlier were driving down the road and cursing me because you also loved a poem that you had just heard and you couldn't write it down, you know, where to go, don't worry. It will all be there. Just go to the website and... As a little plug for Voice of Vashon, because it's such an amazing and truly awesome nonprofit on our island, when you go to the main website, of course, you can get information about taking the 100,000-mile challenge, right? And, Rob, thank you so much for your time this evening. Well, I appreciate that, uh, that you wanted me for the show. Thanks very much for asking. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so my name is March Twisdale, and you've all been listening to my interview with Rob Carney here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana during the same year that the people of America and around the world created the Occupy movement. Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few
Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own but they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Force your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We had little to lose, we must confess Your empty words do leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do Binning of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides, and from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. Our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do Bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many. You are the few.